You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to uh, Live at the Table here on Sirius Radio and on podcast. Um, we're here tonight with a pretty esteemed guest. His name is Alex Berenson. He's a former reporter for the New York Times and new author of 12, 12 novels and two nonfiction oh, no, books, no. In, to, in, including Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Um, but uh, Alex has been getting a lot of press for his contrarian views on the coronavirus in general and lockdowns in specific. And um, let's get right to it because Alex is a hot guest. We're lucky to have it's a good it's a good get, Periel. So um, I don't know. I saw I saw you on um, Tucker last night. So yep. and let's just let's just go into it. I know we all have a lot of questions. First of all, when you did you actually say this is that that the average age of COVID deaths is is eighty? Uh, yes. I mean, technically, it's the median age, meaning half or above. That's what I was going to ask below. you. Uh, in some states, it's a little bit higher than that. It, like Massachusetts, it's 82. Minnesota, it's 83. In the, you know, in the country of Italy, it's 81. In a few states, especially states that have a lot of obesity, like in the South, uh, it might be a little bit lower than that. But yes, worldwide, it looks to be about 80 is the median age of death. So, so of course, you know, I'm wondering what that tells us because, or what, 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 was, what point we should take for now? Because obviously, if everybody died between 79 and 81, you could have a median of 80. And if no, you know, so what, it's still significant. Well, what it tells you is that, look, the virus is definitely killing people, but that we need to be cognizant of where the risks are, uh, you know, which is for the most part, there are people who are elderly. To some extent, if you're younger and you have a severe comorbidity, if you're severely obese, you might have the risk of death. By the way, you can have other problems that don't, you know, that don't involve you dying, right? But for the most part, it does look like people who recover do wind up recovering uh, fully. That you know, some people may lose lung function. It's it's hard to know how many because it's only been a couple of months and whether or not those changes are permanent. But when people, the death numbers here are very scary to people, and I understand that. But we really do need to be cognizant that the average age of that most people who are dying with this are actually older than the average life expectancy in the United States. And to some extent that has to raise the question of whether some people are dying with and not of COVID. Although the counter argument to that is, well, if you look at the overall mortality in a place like New York city in the last six weeks or so, there's, there does seem to be quite a bit of excess mortality, which suggests that COVID is actually killing a fair number of these older people. So, so again, what's funny is people sometimes say, oh, I'm a COVID denier or something like that. That is not true. The, the, the virus is real. The virus can hurt and kill people. We just need to know who is really at risk here. And by the way, that's one reason it's really important to understand that is so we can protect the people who are really at risk and not, not just spend our time trying to scare everybody. Uh, the analogy that I use about this is with HIV. Back in the you know, mid-80s, and certainly into the late 80s, people in the scientific community, the medical community, were very well aware that, uh, you know, HIV was a disease that was spread, uh, you know, was spreading the gay community, it was spreading among people who had, uh, you know, who were, who were injection drug users. And yet we spent a lot of time trying to frighten, you know, 19-year-olds in college about, you know, straight 19-year-olds in college who really weren't at very great risk here. And only when the people in the, you know, 
in the gay community and injection drug users started to say, this is a waste. You are wasting your prevention efforts. You're putting it in the wrong place. Let's talk to us because we're at risk here. Did that start to change? And so okay. it's, it's sort of the same analogy here. Instead of protecting people in nursing homes, which is what we really need to focus on, we're spending a lot of time trying to scare people who are, who are pretty low risk from this. Well, I'm scared. So anyway, so let me just, just for the, for the sake, just so we you have- You shouldn't uh, be though. You, you really well, shouldn't Hold be. on, let's get to that. So I just want to bring up here um, uh, some, a, 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 some stats. I, I think you're going to agree that these are good stats, but just so we're all working from the same frame of reference and people at home kind of get what the stats are. This is this off-scene, um, did it come up? This off-scene New York City, uh, they kind of updated yes. every day or two. So this shows- um, uh, this is the total number of deaths on the right. So uh, over yes. 75 is 6,600, 65, almost 10,000 over 65. Yes. And then like uh, 4,000 or 3,500 below 65. So it's very- so, so, New, so New York City is a bit of an outlier here for reasons that are not entirely clear. Um, in a place like Sweden, uh, there are more people over 90 dying than under uh, 60 and it's not close. So for whatever, the New York City numbers actually don't look much like the numbers from the rest of the world. It's not, again, it's not clear why that is. Well, could it be because we all live on top of each other and take subways and stuff like that? It, you know, it could be that. It could be that early on there were a lot of people getting aggressively treated with ventilators and that turned out not to be a great idea. Uh, we don't really know. No. But again, I'm we not saying that, you know, the New, York, the New York numbers do show that several hundred people uh, under 45 have died. And that obviously you know, is, is, is a problem and not something that I, you know, I think we should, anybody should, uh, we don't overlook, agree. but I, but I would just point out that that's not really the picture in the rest of the world. Okay. But, but we're, 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 we're living in New York. Well, so, but yes. we, we don't have enough ventilators to have, to have knocked the stats up that high. It's gotta be something a little more global than the number we, of, of yeah, this, this, this is a very good question. And I think it's something that as, you know, going forward, I hope there's investigative reporting around this. Why did things get so bad in New York so quickly? And, so I, you know, what does it say about the fact that the death numbers look a little different? So I got one more quick question and then we'll go into a general discussion. I'd like to know, I'd like to arrive by the end of this conversation on a, on a plan for what we should do for, to save America. So, um, <laughs> I just noticed one thing. Last night, you came on to Tucker's show. I just watched it. Um, right after he did a thing about how so many there's so many hypocrites among the people who are, who are advocating the lockdown. And, and it was this, what's his name, the British guy, Randall? Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson um, who uh, was the, like the main proponent of the, of the really scary models and, and was telling everybody to lock down and then was diagnosed positive and then had his mistress over who was married and she was going back to her, her husband and child, correct? Yes, that's but, correct. But, but yeah, what bothered me, right? But what bothered me a little bit about Tucker's presentation there was that I wasn't sure what point he was making. If he was making the point that people can be outlandish hypocrites, I get that. But he seemed to be saying something more. He seemed to be saying that because of this hypocrisy, he was calling into question the underlying recommendations. And I don't think that follows logically. It's like if priests. Uh, tell us that it's wrong to molest children and we catch a lot of priests doing it themselves, it's still no less wrong to molest children. I mean, the fact that this guy is a total hypocrite doesn't mean that the lockdown was a bad idea. And that seems to be what Tucker well, was saying. So, I mean, you have to ask Tucker what he was saying, but I, I would say... How did you take it? Uh, I mean, I would say that if Neil Ferguson thinks that this is so incredibly serious that the whole world 
needs to socially distance for weeks after he was diagnosed. Okay, this wasn't him socially distancing because he was afraid he had gotten this. He had it. He knew he had it. And he was within the two-week period, you know, when he was active. Uh, then, then you can question whether or not Neil Ferguson actually believes this is as serious as he is telling people. No, no, I think you answered your own question. I think because he was, he wouldn't have gone over to his mistress's house if she was the one who tested positive. He already had it, and he's a selfish pig. And he didn't give a shit who he gave it to. Well, but that's human nature. Well, you, I mean, you, know? you should have him on and ask him that. All right. So I've been saying for a long time, and I'll let everybody else in. I've been saying for a long time now. Uh, um, well, let me let me let me let me pull it up. There's this. I, do you remember the name of the economist? Dan is a famous economist who said. Once you think about growth rates, it's hard to think about anything else. And you're talking about kind of like compound interest and anything which spreads virally. And it occurred sure. to me that, well, sure. that, that would mean that anything that we had done like February 1st, even if it had a minor impact, 100 days later, the impact would be huge. And I'm wondering, where do masks fit in to all this? Should we all be wearing masks? Would it have made a huge difference if we had all worn masks? Um, so, so, so there's a, that, that question sounds sort of simple, but it's actually incredibly complicated. There's a whole bunch of sort of questions nested in there. And, and maybe the most important one is the one that people understand the least, which is what is the point of the lockdowns? Okay. Six weeks ago, when this began, we were told that the point of the lockdowns was to flatten the curve. What that actually means is not, we're going to reduce the number of people who get this. What it means is we don't want our hospitals overrun in New York City, in Northern Italy, in Spain, wherever. There was a real risk of health system collapse, okay? So what, what flatten the curve means is we're going to spread this out. So yes, people are going to get infected, but we're not going to infect so many people at the same time that hospitals are going to, you know, have bodies piling up. And we did that successfully, okay? And, and, and outside of New York City, it wasn't even close, to be honest with you. So- okay. So, in fact, in most places in, in the United States right now, hospitals are considerably more empty than they were two months ago. So the point of the lockdown seems to have changed now to this idea of we're just going to prevent people from getting infected indefinitely or until there's some kind of vaccine, which nobody has any idea when that or, might be. Or a therapy. A year, or, it might be five years. It might be never. So, so my point. So, my, so the question is, what does it matter on some level whether or not people get this in May or July or October or December, if they're going to get it. In fact, you can argue they'd be better off getting it in the summer when they're not going to get the flu along with it. And so hospitals can better deal with them and they won't have two infections at once. So, so the mask question is sort of off to the side once you understand the point of what the lockdowns were supposed to be for. Uh, okay, but I don't, I don't know. First of all, I think that that's a very interesting point. I mean, as somebody who, you know, has been like screaming, stay home from the rooftop since day one, that is something um, that is worth sort of thinking about because the idea was, was, I mean, first of all, bodies were piling up in the hospitals in New York City, at least. But the, the idea initially was not I think the understanding was that everybody was going to get this. The idea was was that they wouldn't get it at once. No, Noam? That's, well, yes. Well, well this, I mean, I don't think I have an answer to my question. First of all, 
this kind of reminds me of the rationales for the Gulf War, where they told us that it was because of weapons of mass destruction. But we also knew there were, there were adjacent rationales, like bringing democracy to the Middle East and all these kind of things. And here, here I, it always, I always thought... How'd that, that work out for us? Didn't work out. It, I always thought that the flattening of the curve was the immediate reason, but that also at the same time, we were certainly playing for time, hoping that hydrochloroquine might turn out, that remdesivir might turn out, that something else might turn out, that, that give, give everybody a chance to catch up. And there's all, I imagine there's always an incremental movement on just learning through trial and error how to treat things better. I imagine even without any new drug or therapy, we will lower the death rate a year from now from where it is now. Like, hey, let, let them sleep on their stomachs instead of their backs. Well, that, that's saving a lot I, I think of lives. I think you're correct. And I think that the, uh, you know, the, the Gilead drug has proven somewhat effective. It's not clear whether HCQ is effective. But yes, those things are incremental and will help. Uh, the cost of the lockdowns is far, far more than incremental. Listen, I, you, you don't tell me. I'm, I'm bleeding money like, uh, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see 20 years of my life wiped away by this. Um, so uh, now, but I'm still getting back to mess. I'll bring up a little, I'll send this to you afterwards if you haven't seen it. It's, it's a study. It's a lot of like fancy Ivy school names, Ivy League school names and logarithmic charts. So I, I think the study is absolutely legit. But um, uh, let me just show you this graph if you haven't seen it. This is, a, this is about masks and essentially... This efficacy of the masks and how many people actually wear them. And all this uh, stuff that beginning to turn blue claims that if everybody wore masks, it could lower the R naught below one, which obviously over time could extinguish the virus. It says the available evidence suggests that near universal adoption of non-medical masks went out in public in combination with blah, 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 could successfully reduce the R, the R naught to below one, thereby stopping community spread. Have you seen right. that? Do you think? I, I, so I've not seen this paper, so I can't comment on it. I, I, I will okay. say that I was, a few weeks ago, I felt more in favor of masks than I do now. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, there's very strong evidence that outdoor transmission is simply not an important vector on this. Okay, This thing gets spread three or four ways. It gets spread in the home. It gets spread on public transportation. It gets spread nosocomially, which means in hospitals uh, and, uh, and nursing homes. And it may occasionally get spread in these sort of super spreader events like, you know, like a, a no wedding, yeah. uh, you know, inside or stuff like that. The, 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 there is some small evidence of spread in retail and in, um, you know, and office settings. Okay. So the question is to knock out that five or 10% of spread, whatever percent it is, it is a relatively low percent. Do we want this incredibly powerful signal that you know this is the new normal like or or is that the point really of the masks after all is not actually to reduce the spread in a meaningful way but to let people know that this is you know that this virus is real and we should all be frightened of it and so to me that that is a problematic reason to require masks outside when they are not really going to slow the well, spread because the spread doesn't really happen outside. What about inside? I mean, you talk about public transportation, but to me, a restaurant is indistinct. I mean, a restaurant isn't moving, but it's still a subway car. And so is a, so is a comedy club. So, so there's not, there's just not that much thing. evidence again, that restaurants or retail uh, or offices are, are major vectors. The, the problem with making people, I, I don't know how you make somebody wear a mask when they're eating. Okay, so I, I don't I don't actually know how that works. And for most people who are not healthcare workers, 
you, you go out. I mean, I'm out all the time, okay? People touch their masks. Some people smoke through their masks. People wear their masks over beards. People have no idea how to wear this thing properly. And arguably, you're more likely to, like, increase spread if you're wearing it the wrong way. And I see people, I see people with, you know, surgical masks. I see people with N95 masks. I see people with real chemical weapons respirators. And none of it, none of it has anything to do with the way the virus spreads outside, be, which is that it doesn't what would be a logical explanation for why a virus would spread in a subway, for example, and not in a crowded bar? I mean, it seems well, intuitive. So a subway, a subway has much less ventilation, right? A subway car is an enclosed space not with much. relatively little ventilation where people are standing, you know, in New York City, they, they stand inches from each other on the subway. In a bar, that's in much bar. less true. And by the way, it can spread in a bar, but most of the people in bars are age 20 to 40, you know, not everybody, but they're relatively young. They're in relatively good health. They're going to get this. And most of the time, they're not even going to know they get it. One of the many perverse things about the lockdown is it tends to push the virus at the people who would not be outside. And actually, the New York City today said that the, the, the new infections were, uh, you know, ongoing infections were happening two-thirds in people's homes. Well, of course. Which is exactly what the data are telling us. But they're going to. I'm sorry, my son is jumping on uh, the bed right now. As you got to go, as you got to go. Uh, believe me, I have, I have, I have the same uh, problem. So yeah, but of course everybody's home. But the two, they were still spread two thirds. That same, as you know, as a dad, that same two thirds would spread on top of whatever was going on outside when everybody comes home from work. But listen, we're arguing. Um, We're arguing from two sides. We're arguing from from uh, across. uh, It's the worst kind of argument because we would probably both agree if we were both working from the same data. So afterwards, I'm going to send you my mask data. Um, okay. But it seems, this, is, this is a Dorman plan for um, what I would do if I were governor. And you tell Everybody me wear that. masks. Well, this is no, yes, I would, I would say right now, by penalty of law, like, you know, Massachusetts actually has a $300 fine and in, in somewhere in California, New York is just like basically the honor system. Um, I would say everybody, everybody is going to wear a mask. And right. we're going to see what happens for two weeks. You're going to be for very disappointed in the, in the change in spread with that. It's, Make, it's not going right. to make a difference. But right. But you don't know that. But let's see, that's what I would say. And then if we find that masks are, if, the, if we are still hovering at a low level, then we can start to let that out a little bit. Maybe having, allow people outside to take them off and test it. I would say trial and error is worth 20 IQ points. Test it step by step rather than making any assumptions about masks. Certainly, we have a lot of anecdotal reason to think based on Asia that masks do help. And we can get used to masks. I mean, I have a comedy club. I don't think anybody's going to walk in there anyway without a mask. I mean, nobody's going to. Well, that's, I, so, so that's the thing. People may well feel that they should wear masks and wear them anyway. And by the way, if you're symptomatic, it seems like you should clearly wear a mask. If you're on a crowded subway for an hour, makes sense to wear a mask. I'm not saying that under, under some circumstances, requiring or strongly encouraging the wearing of masks doesn't make a lot of sense. What I'm saying is telling people that they should be wearing these outside is ridiculous and telling people that they should be wearing these like when they're shopping or in offices is probably not very helpful either so so i i'm i'm a when little bit probably i guess scared than it sounds but but i still think that i think the outdoor thing is ridiculous all right so so you don't think wearing masks indoors is crazy as a as a incremental measure 
No, and certainly, as you put in your in your comedy club in a bar. I mean, again, it's, it would be a very odd look, but yes, in in, in a in a subway, yes, all those places. And, no, and should be optional. What? Uh, oh, Dan. I mean, I, I, mandatory, strongly encouraged. I, most people are going to wear them. I, I, I don't. I'm not. I don't know that I favor the government finding people for not wearing them, but people, most people are going to wear them in any case. No, I mean, I'm a libertarian, but I favor it. Go ahead. If you were to implement that policy at the comedy cellar, how would you factor in the eating and drinking that goes on there and that composes a fair amount of your revenue? Would you just I, I, eliminate I, that I, portion of it? Well, I guess they could put the straw up the mass. If we, won't, if we can't serve food, we can't serve food. Listen, if we can't serve drinks, we can't serve drinks. It's, the problem with all this is that it should, be all, it should be all derived from data. And if this late in the game, we still don't know whether masks help or not, like we're flying blind. It bothers me. We should yes, know that by I now. Told, that I agree with. I, I, I certainly agree with that. But, but, we, but we're not flying entirely blind because we know that even without large-scale mask wearing, there's not a lot of outdoor transmission. I mean, I think the comedy club okay, is an so interesting case because you can, you can argue it either way. Do we, do so we you know that there's not a lot allow... of outdoor... sorry. I'm sorry? Uh, Dan, Dan got frozen. Yeah, I say, I say that you said that we, there's not a lot of outdoor transmission, and we know that just from, from interrogating people that are sick or from what's going on in Sweden. How do we know that? So, so well, Sweden's an interesting case, but no, in fact, in China... Uh, they, the, the, a couple of scientists tracked, uh, they looked at 7,000 cases in China and two of the 7,000 was confirmed outdoor transmission. And they looked at, uh, of those cases, there were 318 clusters of cases totaling 1,200 cases. Not one was outdoors and nearly all were in home or public transportation. Again, retail is just not... I'm sorry, Ezra, Ezra, you have to leave. Ezra, <laughs> come on, I, Ezra, I, I, come on the show. <laughs> yeah, come on, say hi to everybody, and then you got to go. What are their names? What are their names? You can see them right uh, there. Noam, There's Noam, Dan. Daniel, and Carol. Hi, Ezra. Hi. There he is. Hey. Uh, all right. <laughs> Wave to everybody and then go upstairs. All right. You know, your yeah, dad's a very big shot today. Well, it's certainly a nice. Place. I will get you a toy, but you have to go. You gotta go, <laughs> please. Um, it's okay. Don't, if, don't, uh, so, so these Chinese scientists looked at this, and they and they found there were literally no outdoor clusters. And in Taiwan, you can say, okay, it's China. We don't trust China. They've had similar results in Taiwan, um, where they tracked people very, very closely. This wasn't even trying to track them afterwards. This was tracking people they knew were symptomatic at the time. They found essentially uh, all the transmission was familial or, or, you know, or close friends. This virus it clusters. But what do you do in a city like New York if you can't have public transportation? I mean, that seems just cripplingly problematic. I, I agree. So, so that's a case where, you know, masks make sense, right? And, and discouraging people from getting on the subway if they're sick makes sense. Um, so, so uh, but yeah, New, York, listen, New, York, New York's got hard decisions to make because, because the city is going to have to function. It's going to have to go back to, to something. Yeah. By the way, are you aware of whether the Taipei Times is a reliable organ since you brought China? Um, I, I mean, it's Taipei, it's Taiwan, I, I, I would imagine. Why do you ask? Because one of the things about masks, I have, I, I says, we, uh, virus outbreak, blah, 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 wearing masks, greatly reducing spread. The Central Epidemic <laughs> Command Center Specialist Advisory Panel, it says that the risk of infection is high. 
uh, if both are not wearing masks, but if only the healthy person wears a mask, the risk of contracting is greatly reduced, possibly as much as 50 to 80%. If both are wearing masks, the risk is down to 80 or 90%. And I'm seeing this again and again. Um, so look, so would you I, I, here's the thing about me. I am happy to be convinced by data. If the data suggests that yeah. we all should be wearing masks all the time, that and that's the way to get out of these lockdowns, then that's what we should be doing. Um, uh, uh, Ezra, you need to go. Go. I'm going to pick you up and go. Ezra, um, Ezra. That's enough. You've been cute. Now get out. Out, out, out. Come on. Come on, dude. Hold on. Go. Go. Go, please. Go on. Go on, go on, go on. Bribery might be the only recourse at this time. Give him some candy. Tell him to put on Fox All News right. and chill. I'm coming back. <laughs> coming back. All right. Have, that was fantastic. <laughs> this is this is the best. This is the best interview I've done since this whole thing started. Um, it happens all the time. We all have kids. Uh, so every my son comes. So uh, so just to, just to go back to this, if it listen, if that's what the data ultimately shows, and that's where we get, then let's get there. Wearing masks and right. ending the lockdown is a lot better than no masks and the lockdown goes on forever. So I'm. So what I'm about with you. Sweden? Convince me, and I'm with you. I'm going to say you have an email address, right? Hurry up. Well, how else what about what about Sweden? What do you, what do you? Um, what do you what am, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, give me one. Okay, Ezra, you gotta go. You gotta go. Okay. All right. What about Sweden? Um, what is the question? <laughs> what do you? What What's your take on Sweden and how it's doing and what we learned from them? Uh, my take is that they've had roughly the same results as most of the rest of Northern Europe, or, or uh, certainly. The UK, France, I guess you can argue about some of the Nordic countries, but they've had, they've had roughly the same results and they haven't blown up their economy or society to get there. So to me, that's a win. They have three, three times, three or four times as many deaths as their close neighbors, but basically the same as like Ireland, right? Am I right? Yeah, exactly. So people can, I get, you know, I guess you can, uh, Ezra, you need to go. Go on, please. The only, the only thing that worries about Ezra is that you may not want to tweet it now. Yeah. This That's, reminds me of the get off the shed sketch of SNL where you know, All right, I think he's I think he's bored now. All right. Okay. Uh, so so listen he to me a Benadryl. <laughs> I'm kidding. These results would have to be far worse than yeah. everybody else's for us to say that they've made a mistake. They have saved their economy. Their schools are, you know, are open. Primary schools are certainly open. They have not blown up their society. If their results are the same as the UK or France on a per capita basis, and they haven't blown up their society, and that's a win to me. Well, as yeah, I understand I it, there is a lot of there are a lot of economic repercussions even in Sweden because they do have yes. they are taking a lot of voluntary measures, and so so it's you can't say their economy is unscathed. I don't know to what extent. No, no, I agree. No, they've been hit by this, but it's the difference between a recession and a depression. Okay, now since we're running out of time, I ask you a question. I had a big argument with a friend of mine today. And, um, and whenever I, I argue, he, he, he calls me a Republican and I'm not a Republican, <laughs> not, not at all. But, um, because I was, because I was criticized because I, well, basically my argument was that I know that Trump is a jackass and I know that he, he's, it, it's impossible to defend the man Trump, but I am yet to be convinced that any particular mistake that he made 
or didn't make has been that consequential. And I'd like to get your take on it. And by the way, are you are you a Republican? You're not. A, I mean, it doesn't seem like you I'm are. a registered independent. I'm a registered. Okay, and you're not, are you a Trump supporter? Uh, I'm asking. You don't have to answer, but uh, you know, I don't talk about my politics, but I think. I think you can go back and look at my tweets and see some pretty negative stuff that I wrote about Donald Trump. Um, okay, so now uh, tell me, so, if, if we had a different president, what might he have done differently? How could we be better? Well, off? if we, listen, if Barack Obama were president, the situation would be entirely different for two reasons. Okay. First of all, Obama is much more, he's clearly more data-driven, okay? But the other reason that's possibly even more important is that the media would not be trying to kill him every day. Okay, and, and it, I think it is impossible to understand what's happened in the last two months without understanding the media dynamic here, which is, let's be honest, okay, I worked for the New York Times. Many people in the New York Times hate Donald Trump. That's just a fact. And, and you don't have to like Donald Trump to think that that's a dangerous position for the media to be in. So this thing, Donald Trump is very good at kind of confusing the media and baiting the media and making things into a joke. And in this case, those strategies all fail. Okay, people are really, really scared of the coronavirus. And when Trump tries to bluff and he comes out like he doesn't know what he's talking about, like with the Lysol, he looks bad. And they know it and they love it. And so they, they meaning the elite media, meaning CNN, New York Times, etc., have pushed this very hard. And that w dynamic would not be happening with Barack Obama. And so we'd probably be in a more reasonable place in terms of our policy. I don't know what exactly it would be, but all I can tell you is in Germany right now, they're talking about a very quick reopening at this point based on the data. So, if you, well, so I, I'm not sure if I got, if I, if I asked the wrong, I didn't get an answer, but if you had been president, what, would, what would you <laughs> have done differently Back then, before now, you have the benefit of some hindsight. But like, how could you have saved lives? What should Trump have done differently? How could he have pushed this curve down? Well, I think you—you you know, you said it a few minutes ago. You're not sure that any strategy would have worked, right? Look at you know Italy, these countries that had very aggressive, quick lockdowns nationally. They've had terrible numbers. You can make a case that the lockdowns don't seem to work at all. Again, if you look at Japan. You know, if you look at Sweden, in Japan, there seem to be very few cases and no real lockdown. I know they've, they've talked about some emergency measures now. Um, you know, Sweden, no hard lockdown. They have had deaths, but it hasn't been more or less than, you know, a lot of the rest of Europe. So I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that there is a winning strategy here. This, this virus, if it gets it here, look, here's what is clear to me at this point, And I think should be clear to everybody. We need to protect elderly people. We need to protect nursing homes. We need to protect elderly people in hospitals. We need a, a strategy that concentrates on the people who are most at risk. And to me, let the New York Times and CNN and the Washington Post fight about what Donald Trump or anybody else should have done in February and March. I'm interested in May. I'm interested in getting these lockdowns ended before we crater our whole society. I'm interested in getting schools open because children are at very, very low risk here. And we are endangering some children by forcing them to stay in with abusive parents or neglectful parents. So let's, so, so the Alex Berenson question is not what went wrong in early March, although there is plenty that went wrong in early March and in February. It what is, went wrong? what do we do now? But what did go wrong? In Again, I'm not interested in that. Like, okay. I'm just not going to answer. I'm, just, I'm, not interested. I'm interested. Not, you're the expert. <laughs> All right. Well, what, what? I mean, again, like, should we have had more testing and more contact tracing back then? Yeah. Like, 
would it have mattered? I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. If the if the proposition is that ultimately this is a novel virus and it's gonna it's gonna everyone's gonna get a chance at getting it, and sixty percent or seventy percent of people are ultimately gonna get it, then on some level that's gonna happen whatever the strategy is. Unless you're gonna be New Zealand and really try to cut cases to zero and spend the rest of the eternity fighting to keep cases at zero. And this is not. Look, I keep, you know, my, uh, this is not what they called in the stand, Captain Trips. Okay. This does not kill 99% of the people it infects. It kills between one in probably about one in 600 to one in 250 people it infects. And those people are for the most part, extremely elderly or have comorbidities. So to me, that is not a proposition where shutting society down indefinitely makes a lot of sense. That's where I am right now. You can argue about what should have happened two months ago, but that's where, that's where I am. How do we protect the elderly? Well, we focus on nursing homes. We make sure that nursing homes have state surveyors there every day. We make sure that they have plans to keep sick people and sick staff members away from from older people who don't have the virus. You try to make sure that they're hiring people who've already been infected and have immunity. There are reasonable, and I'm sure there are people who are experts in nursing home infection protocol who have really good ideas, but that's where we should be focusing, not all of our attention, because this can hurt some people who are younger, but that's where we should be focusing. Let's focus that's our attention home. on the people who are at risk. That's nursing homes. That's like their own little internment camp in nursing homes. But what about grandma at home with me? So that I mean, so grandma probably like, that's in some level, that's up to you as, as, a, as a healthy older person. How much risk do you want to take? Do you want to see your grandkids or are you not willing to? I, I mean, those are choices that I think as an individual you can make. You know, uh, again, lockdowns drive people into the home, sometimes with elderly relatives, and to some extent are, are likely to, or are yeah. at least theoretically likely to incur or cause sickness that way. How do you Guys, send your it, kid to sorry. school? I'm sorry. How do you send your kid to school in a multi generational home without him coming home and, and getting everybody sick? So I mean, the evidence is is quite strong that not only do kids not get very sick from this, they actually don't spread it uh, to adults. Good. It's not the flu. It's the opposite of the flu. Kids tend to get it from adults and clear it very quickly. Um, Australia had a really good, very very clear statement about this the other day, and the Australians are very aggressively trying to reopen their schools. We should be trying to reopen our schools. I will say that unequivocally. I think it's a, I think it's a terrible choice we've made to sacrifice our children's education here, and I will stand by that. Um, yeah, my, I, I'm homeschooling two kids. Although I, I kind of think they're getting a better education in certain ways, but I, I don't know how much. <laughs> we can um, yeah. Well, I mean, guys, I this, this was, this was great. Um, I mean, listen, it's a whole people. You know, this has only been going on six weeks. September is four months away. That's four more months with kids, no school. And I will say this, it's very clear to me in places like New York City, if, if, if there's any chance that the schools are not going to reopen and run quasi-normally, people are going to leave New York. They're going to go oh, yeah. to states where their kids can get school. I think you're right. So, All right. So well, this was great. I, I, I appreciate the sort of tough but fair questions. I wish I got more of that. Um, but I guess I got to go to a comedy uh, show to get it. Well, boy, that's, a, that's, that's the highest praise I think I've ever, I mean, I couldn't ask for a tough but fair. I, I love that. I hope, you, I, hope you, I hope you mean that. Go ahead, Dan. I do, I do. And I'm sorry that Ezzy was a bit of a, was a bit of a- No, uh, that made it charming. We, we love that. We love that. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye, Bye Alex. I'll email you. Thank you. I know okay, you don't bye. need it. I know bye. you don't need it, but be safe. You too. And stay sane, as I say to people. Stay sane. I'm going to send you some email. All right. Thanks, All right. guys.
Thanks, nice meeting you, Alex. Uh, Periel, do we have Dove coming on? No, it's just us. Uh, we okay. can keep it a short episode. He's a pretty interesting guy, right? Yes, he is. So yeah. this is, I didn't want to interrupt um, because, you know, you were having so much fun, Noam. But I still don't feel like we have an answer to, I asked you this the other day also, we have 4% of the population, right, in America? New York City? 4% what? The United States is 4% of the Earth's population. Oh, okay, okay, I'll take that uh, arguendo. Yeah, go ahead. And we have 25% of the deaths globally for coronavirus. So how do you explain that? Uh, I, I don't know. I, ha I have to check your stats, but, but um, we have, uh, I, I guess that probably, you could probably expand that same, like, you know, you, when you aggregate statistics, you could probably include Europe and uh, most of the Western world as a fraction and, and come up with the same thing. The, free, the freer, more technologically advanced countries of the world uh, this are, are dying more and, um, listen, we don't know what the dictatorships are really suffering, but they're dying more and they have, and they're not locking down their people with the harshness that China can. And then maybe climate wise, Africa is less vulnerable or maybe it just hasn't spread, started spreading in Africa yet. But we, we, in the Western world, we live very close to each other. I mean, there's some, is there some conspiracy theory I haven't thought of? What's your, what's your no, angle on this? No, not at all. I mean, maybe there's a conspiracy theory that you haven't thought of, but I'm not thinking of a conspiracy theory. I'm really wondering, you know. You're suggesting we're doing something wrong. Correct, so. thank you. I mean, I think, we've, we, I think your question is prudent of what, what could have been done differently. Because Are there 10, 10 billion people in the world? No, I don't think there's quite 10 billion. I think it's about 7 billion, but it, uh, I'm not sure. Okay. Is that with the math? Uh, I, 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 in back of, you know, like just in my, in my brain, let me see. What, well, uh, I think the, the point is either way, we are, we're uh, disproportionately um, affected. Yeah, 4.25%. Well, it could also be that, um, that those countries, as Noam said, deaths will come later. Um, right. if, if you flatten the curve. Or we're doing, or we're doing something wrong. Noam, did did he convince you of anything, or persuade you on any on any points tonight? Um. Well, he he actually, I mean, he actually agreed with me. He's just working. Seems to me he's, we're working from different data or assuming different data is is correct. He didn't he didn't reject that masks would work. He just is not yet convinced. In other words, if if he. If, he seemed to say that if it's true that masks can reduce spread to the level that the Taipei Times said, then yeah, it would make sense to have people wear masks indoors at least. So I don't, I don't think we, he and I disagreed about anything except that we don't have, we don't have any short data to work from. That's really but the- But his main point was open up the schools and end the lockdown. I mean, that's sort of his main, his main thing. Well, it, he, he's saying that it's, uh, that it's, he's taking it as an assumption or that kids, kids are not, significant spreaders of this. Well, if they're not, yeah, it makes sense to open the schools, right? I mean, I, you know, it's, it all comes down to the data. Well, he also it favors sort of ending lockdown generally, which I don't think- Yeah, no, I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. If, if, let's say if masks don't work, let's say, if, let's say if masks have absolutely no effect, then- No, that's not true. But how, how do we- 
No, but for the sake of argument, what would we do then? And then I think that, that we would spend more and more um, time thinking about what he said, which is common sense, which is to focus our main energy on the, at the high-risk populations and do everything we can so that the low-risk or virtually no-risk populations can go on about their lives producing dollars and wealth for the rest of us and to, to treat it as a one-size-fits-all solution when we see such stark differences between the cohorts, as they say, um, is not smart, doesn't seem smart. So if we know everybody below 40 has really no risk of, who doesn't have a comorbidity, has no risk of dying from this, then we do our best to try to isolate everybody that does have a comorbidity and is above 40. But like that's a leper not colony. I mean, there are plenty of but, people, but everybody, there are plenty of people who are dying who are not elderly not and don't have comorbidities. Not, not plenty and, and not, not enough to shut down. To, to, and listen, we're playing with fire here. We cannot, we cannot end our economy. We, we can't just keep printing money. Um, if, we can, if we can print money indefinitely and it has no bad effect, then we have to reevaluate the whole concept of money and, and, and poverty. Like, okay, just give everybody money. Obviously, at so some what point- What we have to do is- is to make sure that those things that are necessary to life get produced. Meaning electricity has to continue to flow. Food has to continue to be cultivated. Um, infrastructure has to be repaired. However, do comedy clubs have to open in order for society to survive? Probably not. Um, not comedy clubs, but, yeah. but um, restaurants and, and gathering. And people have a social need to gather, too. It's not... Um, so I mean, I, I had a thought and I, I forgot it, but I, I think, um, we have to find a way to end it. He's right. And he's, and he's right about that. And he, so he's working hard to try to figure out that solution. And if we have to separate the, the older for, oh, it was Cariel's point that yes, there are, there are some people dying who are young. I could bring up the chart again, or you could rewind. There are some people who are dying who are young without comorbidities, but it's very young. It's nothing, for instance, to use an example I used years ago, which is, we could cut out way more deaths by lowering the speed limit to 30 miles an hour on the highways or 20 miles an hour or five miles an hour. Every one of those will have a certain amount of uh, lives saved. And the only cost is economic. And nobody would ever think to do that. There is a trade-off between economy and convenience and, well, maybe, and reality. There is. Maybe, and we, can and we, do an, maybe we can do an offset. You know how like companies, if they, if they pollute, they got to offset it by planting trees or whatever. Maybe we well, can like, offset coronavirus deaths by more vigorously enforcing drunken driving. This way we come out even at the end of the day. I don't know. Oh, I thought you were going to sell like carbon, like carbon credits. I'm going to have like coronavirus death credits. Like if you, if you want to open more robustly, you got to pay more money because you're going to kill more people in coronavirus. Well, that's another idea. I'm just saying, (laughs) you know, Is the idea then that everybody is going to get it and that's something, or that most people are going to get it? Because my understanding was that the idea was to prevent people from getting this. And if we all stay home, the virus will eventually die. No, that was... That was his whole point, Perel. His point is that he's right, that he was always told about flattening the curve. Flattening the curve meant bending the curve of people getting it down below the curve of hospital beds, essentially. It was never a permanent. And, and so long as we, the curve was below the hospital beds, 
kind of the idea was to proceed along. But I always thought, I think we said this, that that wasn't totally the whole story, that we were right. also at the same time playing for time. Because in a certain amount of time, as I said, we can, maybe a therapy will emerge, uh, maybe we will catch up with the PPE, we'll catch up with, with all sorts of things that can better equip us to handle this. And I think it is, listen, if we're all going to get it, I think it's better if we all get it over five years than over, uh, than over six months, if we can have an economy. But if the economy is going to be crushed, then it's be- and we're all going to get it, it's better to all get it tomorrow and then move on the next day. I mean, that, that's, that's clearly the best thing. If, if the number of deaths is the same. Well, you know, this depends on where we're at with new treatments and vaccines and this and that, and, and simply knowledge of, of how to treat it, which I don't know if there's been any great advances. I feel like there's been less news. You know, I feel like there was a flurry of news about treatments and different discoveries, and I haven't necessarily heard a lot recently about but, but this see, see dan this is why the thing of masks intrigues me so much because masks are social distancing social distancing it's it's a constructive social distance measure it's instead of actual distance you create the distance by blocking the the flow of air so which is essentially what the distance is when you want people to be eight feet apart or six feet apart is because you're measuring how far the droplets can travel and you say six feet, which I don't think is actually the accurate number. That's what they say, six feet. But if you have a, a contraption which can limit the travel to one foot, then with a mask, let's say, then you can social distance beyond one foot. And I don't know. And then also masks are low tech. And I, could, I imagine that clever people, we've already seen a little, little bit of it, will find ingenious ways to make masks even more effective over the next three months. Because obviously, if you can prevent the virus 100% from coming out of somebody's nose or mouth, and then they can still socialize and go out to clubs and go to the movies and go to work, that's, that's, that's you know 90% of the ball game right there. And yeah, it sucks to walk around in a mask, but we'll just have to live with that until something else presents itself. The Asians do it, and they seem to get used to it, so we can get used to it. But it doesn't seem like we're thinking that way. I think that, well, I don't know. I'm not sure if, I don't know why we're not thinking that way. Perhaps because we're not 100% sure that uh, masks are uh, the solution in terms of people in close quarters. In other words, if people sitting together at a movie theater, hundreds of people with masks on, is that uh, effective? Would that be effective? I don't know, but it seems to me that there was a lot of- shoveling popcorn into their face half the time. I think that there was a lot of um, unspoken hope that the high-tech cavalry was going to arrive to save the day. It was testing, contact tracing, blah, 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 therapies, hydrochloric, whatever it is. Trump obviously was yearning for that. And, you know, we've been programmed maybe from too many movies to see the cure come just in time, you know. And Dr. McCoy comes up with the vaccine right, right in the nick of time. And I'm not being facetious. I think these things do affect us. And I think that we have to resolve, resign ourselves to the idea that the high-tech cavalry is not on its way, and we're going to have to go back to low-tech solutions. And I said that a wise old grandmother, a wise old Jewish grandmother, I said, would have been better as head of the CDC than these fancy doctors, because the fancy doctors are thinking about fancy um, solutions. And a grandmother would have said, 
wear a mask, stay away from people as much as you can, drink chicken soup to tell you stay healthy, you know, uh, grandma. I mean, this is all, all very, very, very basic common sense. And in the end, the only things that have mattered have been our uh, lack of common sense, not shutting down New York in time, all, all the dumb things, fucking de Blasio going to the gym. I mean, what, what is, we have had the worst luck, you know, We've had the worst luck. If, if we had had a president and a, and a governor like this uh, far leftist uh, mayor of San Francisco, we would have been way, way better off. She could have done, she would have saved us more by being president and governor than all the socialist policies would, ru would ruin us if she had her way. And maybe that's not quite right, but you get my point. No, I'm a so just, Yeah. Just, uh, change the tenor of the conversation briefly. Yeah. We only have 10 more minutes, but uh, are we going to get uh, Bernie Fabricant on to talk with Periel uh, about oh, yeah. her book, On My Knees, it's called, I believe. Tonight would have been a great night to do it, but we didn't do it. Well, we would have had to act fast because we, we, we had thought that uh, Alex would be on for an entire hour, but. Um, yeah, I thought he was gonna be on for an hour. Um, all right, it was okay. We, we, I think we actually covered uh, most of the ground we wanted to cover with him. I want to hear, first of all, Dan, I, I want to know how you're doing and what's going on over there, but I do want to answer Noam's question very briefly. Um, so my friend who is a pediatric ER doctor um, is in Israel, and she, to answer your question, it, how Israel just reopened all of its um, you know, primary schools, and I asked her the same question you asked Alex, how, what, what did we do wrong? What could we have done differently? And the answer is, is that they shut everything down when there were like a hundred cases there. And I mean, I think that that's really the answer. And we, well, we, there were probably tens of thousands of cases in the US, especially in New York, before anything got closed. Right, well, no, no, it was, it was, it was in the hundreds, but. Oh yeah, undiagnosed. I mean, on on Undi yeah. Undiagnosed. Dan, how but, are you? But listen, I just want to say something about Israel. First of all, be mindful of what Alex said, which is that yeah. But as soon as they open up, they might catch up in no time. You know, you you Maybe. can obviously Maybe. yeah. And there's no reason to think they won't if nothing changes because there's there's really no difference. Maybe the weather's a little bit warmer, but Israel's not that cold all the time. But um, so it's, it's too soon. It's like, you know, the exit polls before the, the early, the early returns in an election, you got to wait until all the districts come in and it's the same thing with Israel. But I will say this about Israel. We as Americans have, um, felt that the Israelis were crazy for voting for Netanyahu because we only cared about one issue, which was that we thought he shouldn't build settlements. Essentially it comes down to that. And what we failed, we, we failed to realize is that the Israelis have more than that issue. And it turns out that this dude, whatever you think about his Palestinian policy, is extremely competent. And he- Not if you're Palestinian. Not if you're Palestinian, but I'm talking about in terms of, in terms of, I'm trying to explain to you why the Israeli public has a broader decision before them about whether or not to have Netanyahu elected. And we have to understand that just because they vote for Netanyahu is not necessarily an endorsement of the settlements, although many probably do agree with them, but many might not. The point is that he's extremely competent. And Israel among all, I will call him a Western nation, Israel among all the Western nations in the world 
even considerably more than Germany, has kept this extremely low. Now, maybe that is just climate. I don't know. but No, it's certainly we, not climate. That's ridiculous. It's not climate at all. Well, you don't know no. that. You do know that. There's been well, no... Why is it spreading more in Africa? Well, maybe it will. I mean... Okay. Um, we don't know. Anyway, so, so can we get Bernie on to discuss On My Knees? It seems like... Now, Periel, it doesn't look like Noam's going to read your book. I know. Um, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. It's I just so haven't any chance, any chance to be allowed to masturbate. No, you're disgusting. <laughs> it shouldn't shock you because... It's a book you, called On My Knees. <laughs> it's a play on... Masturbate to the written word, Noam? No, actually, um, not of his per in Periel's voice. I forgot his heard. I forgot. I can't say that. Actually, it's, actually, really, it's actually really funny that you said that, though, because <laughs> the sort of campaign when the book came out um, was, can a book be better than a blowjob? No, I would say it can't. Well, you have I would say well, I would say this about a book. First of all, a very bad blowjob and a very good book. You got to no. read the book. You can't answer that until you read the book. But I would say that a book, of course, it gives you more steady enjoyment, whereas a blowjob lasts for how long it lasts, especially if it's a good one, doesn't last long. <laughs> Noam, can you can you get off to the written word? Was the question I posed to you that that uh, you haven't answered? I mean, an erotic. Have you ever masturbated to erotic fiction or nonfiction? My, my wife's family will listen to this podcast. So you leave me alone, please. I'm sorry. Well, look, you love to bring up this sort of stuff. All yeah, of a sudden, no, I, you brought it up. You can't snivel out of it. Dan, how is your novel coming? Are you getting a lot of writing done? I'm getting more writing done than I would be outside of lockdown, but I'm not Stephen King, uh, either in popularity, quality, or um, work ethic. He's written... He's probably writes two books a year. Um, no, I write very slowly. I'm I'm writing more than I would have otherwise written. I'm at I'm at sixty thousand words. That's very I'm told I'm told that a first no, that a novel in general that publishing companies prefer sixty to eighty thousand words. That's so what I've read. So you're almost done. Well, I'm almost at sixty thousand. No, eighty to hundred thousand words. Right, eighty to hundred thousand. So if I'm at sixty, you know, I'm 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 getting there. I'm like you know, I'm in I'm in I'm in the fifth set of a five set match. I'd certainly the you know, it's, I can actually, it actually seems like, oh shit, I might actually finish this. When I first started, it seemed like I couldn't even think about finishing because it was too discouraging. But now I can think about finishing. The realistic possibility, even probability. Whether, whether it'll be good or not, it's a whole other story, of course. But, um, uh, per Periel, will you send me Alex's uh, um, email address, please? Yeah, where is he, by the way? Is he in New York City? I think he is. I, I'm not sure though. I, I assume. Well, you know that he that homie. It didn't seem very New York Cityish. I don't think, but I I don't perfectly recall um, the image of his house. But yeah, I don't that know didn't look like an apartment in the city. It looked more it like a, a bedroom. How are you guys nuts? You can't tell. It could be anywhere. No, no I don't know. Um, uh, there's all kinds of apartments in New York City. Wow. Um, can you just send it to me now? Yes. Can we finish the show first? I mean, do you want me to I am finished. Do I such an asshole? <laughs> well, we we'd All like right. to give the people their full hour. I mean, do you think you anyway, can no, hang on really to for five minutes while you're not arguing with somebody? No, but you're really going to read Periel's book? Be realistic. Don't make promises you can't keep. You I don't read emails. How the hell are you going to read a 300-page book? I will you read. You don't want to read it. 300 pages? It's not 300 pages. Whatever it is. It's 200 plus pages. Look, he can't believe I'm capable of stringing together so many words. 
Oh, I no, think. No, that's not quite right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the efficiency of those words. I, 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 can't, I, I think that, is there a cliff notes, the monarch notes to that by any chance? Yes, it's I mean, called, it's, it's called Bernie it's, Fabricant is the monarch notes. He will come on. He will give us the. Listen, Perriel, to be, to be totally honest, uh, Bernie is really uh, into this book, which, uh, and Bernie is no dope. So I would have to say on that limited data that this book, that you are a good writer and this is a, this is an entertaining book. I, I, I have to say that. I am so a good writer. I'm a, I'm part, a, of the reason, part of the reason Bernie's enjoying the book is because he knows Periel, at least via this podcast. And when you I know somebody, you know, it becomes more interesting. Would it be interesting yeah, to a person? Did. I mean, there were plenty of people who enjoyed that book that didn't know me personally. Uh, uh, okay, fine, but I'm just saying it adds, it, it adds, it's even more interesting when it's someone you know or with somebody you follow or listen to on a regular basis. What does Bernie Fabricant do other than be my favorite Fabricant, Steve Fabricant's brother? Can we, can we get Is more guests? People, can we get more guests like Alex Berenson and, and uh, Ross Bark and, and, you know, these kind of like, smart, left to center, uh, people who are ready to have, I mean, I, I like that he said the questions were tough, but fair, you know, like a guy who, who that we need guests like that. People are not going to get all pissed off and storm off, you know, what enjoy. What is wrong with you? There's something wrong with you. You know that, right? I don't, I don't well, get you. Well, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, but why do you say that now? Because what kind of a conversation is that to have in the I mean, yes, we, what do you think I do with half of my day other than reach out to guests that I think you're going to like talking to? I, I wish I knew what the, the gene was because <laughs> you have it. My wife has it. It's like you take everything as a criticism. I'm saying I'd like to get more guests like that. And you say all you hear is you're not getting enough guests like that. No, I didn't. That's not <laughs> what I heard. Yeah. Anyway, I thought he was, I thought he was a very good guest. What's that? Well, you know, if you read his Twitter, he's a lot more, I would say reasonable, but a lot more, his Twitter feed's a lot more um, provocative and, and, and a lot more critical of, uh, of the government response than he was on our show. But I guess that's typical when you, when you talk to somebody as a human being in person, it's not the same as reading them on Twitter. Yeah, well, Twitter has a perverse incentive is that it, to get attention on it, you, you have to be uh, more provocative. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to impugn him in any way. I don't, maybe, I haven't even read his Twitter, so maybe that's not fair. You know who we could him. get on is, uh, but the problem is, Noam, is all these guests that you would love to have on, they're, they're not all dying to be on, but maybe we can throw a Hail Mary and try to get Michael Moore. Oh, he has a new documentary out that's been highly criticized. He'll come on. He likes me. We, you we, guys we, underestimate how much people like to come on this show. And given the fact that nobody except for me tries to do that, I don't think you can say something like that. I think well, Michael Moore would come on. Uh, Ted Alexandro knows how to contact him. But, but he and I, Michael Moore sat in the olive tree for like an hour one time. And we had a really good, friendly conversation. We liked each other. I, I, I don't like his work. To be honest, I, mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, but, but personally, he was a, like kind of what you're describing that personally, he was a lot more reasonable and um, he's very bright and very, and very charming. You know, I liked him. Okay. Like settled, and that will be our next attempt to try to get Michael Moore. Um, his new documentary is called Planet of the Humans. It's a, 
he's not the narrator this time. He's just the producer, but he's, it's a scathing critique of the environmental movement. And his scathing critique has, it, has itself been scathingly criticized. Like all his stuff. You know, I, I tend to, I mean, he's, I tend to view him as a propagandist with, with uh, you know. He probably wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, he's going to watch this and be like, I would have come on, but then you guys just were so... No, he, he, he got asked one time during the, whatever the one he did about uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, and he had some facts. He was confronted, I think it was like a Good Morning America, and, and, and he essentially answered kind of what Dan just said. He said, listen, I'm not here to be objective. I'm here to make a point or something like that. When they, when they cornered him on, on his kind of like cherry-picking facts or even spinning some facts, he... He, he, he has an agenda that he's trying to move forward and he's kind of, he kind of admits that from time to time. So I don't know, but he's, he's definitely, he's definitely quite bright. I'll tell you that. If you have mine, you'll, you'll see he's quite bright. Um, and listen, he, he understood. I think that he, there's a little, um, um, ambivalence for him because the people that he started out his career championing, the, the auto workers and was a GM and Roger and me is that was, it was, it was GM yeah yeah um these are the people who are now and and that was they were like the people he was championing and they were the underdogs and now we look down on those people the same liberal Democratic Party that thought Michael Moore was so wonderful for elevating these people for being concerned about them now thinks of these people as the deplorables. And that's, he struggles with that. And that's why he was predicting that Trump would win. But those are his people. He doesn't hate them. He doesn't hate them the way the average liberal hates them. He feels he understands them. And he used to be their champion. He was their champion before Trump was their champion. Yeah, but Trump's not really their champion is the difference. Whatever the point is. Yeah, but it's more than that because Trump may not really be their champion. But we talk about them, like these people in the Democratic Party and, and journalists especially talk about these people like they're beneath contempt. Toothless, rubes, you've heard all these words. Those are the people that Michael Moore was writing about until immigrants all came along and then they became the, 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 the group that we all have to write stories, uh, legitimate stories about how they're suffering and blah, 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 and how they don't work and how they're, and how they're the, the, getting the, under the heel of society. And now we don't care about the white working class anymore. Yeah, that's old. That's old news. Just it's, it's it's just how phony everybody is. It's just like Tara Reid and Kavanaugh. It's like yeah, yeah. You would never vote for anybody who grabbed pussy. And now the headlines are yeah, I believe Biden did it, but I'll vote for him anyway. But nobody could. But if anybody had written yeah, I think Trump grabbed pussy, but I'll vote for him anyway. Can you imagine what the response on the left would have been? But that was everybody knew that was going to be the fact that yeah, people not happy he talked that way or did it even. But that that's not what they vote on. But just the, the, the way they forgive themselves now. I, I'm, I was in a time today. I think Biden did it, but I'm going to vote for him anyway, which I totally respect. But would, would whoever wrote that, that editorial, would they have respected that if somebody in the Wall Street Journal had written that in 2015? They would, have been, they would have been up in arms about it. How could you? What kind of monster are you? How can the people on the, how much do we hear? How could the people on the Christian right still vote for Trump after they find out what an adulterer he is. Really? Really? Maybe now you understand. Maybe now you fucking understand now that we, things are coming out about Biden and you still want to find an excuse to vote for Biden. And uh, why don't we wrap it up? I think it was a good tight show. I'd hate to, I'd hate to just prolong it just for the sake of prolonging it when we have a good tight little 
hour package here. It's been an hour. And, and can somebody please send me Alex's immediately? If you want to follow Alex Berenson on Twitter, it's simply at Alex Berenson, A-L-E-X-B-E-R-E-N-S-O-N. If you want to follow Ezra Berenson, his son, I don't have that information. <laughs> we're, we're here uh, now doing it twice a week, a special lockdown uh, bonus episodes. And you can send us your comments and suggestions at podcast at comedyseller.com. And, and you can uh, follow us on Instagram at live from the table. And how much do you want to bet that within moments of me closing this, I'm going to get an email from Noam asking me for Alex's information. I, I'm not going to take that bet. We will see you next time. Thank you, everybody.